I'd like to start today's episode with an excerpt from the book The Art of Stillness by Pico Ayer, who had the opportunity to practice meditation with Leonard Cohen. Pico writes, Sitting still as a way of falling in love with the world and everything in it, I'd seldom thought of it like that. Going nowhere as a way of cutting through the noise and finding fresh time and energy to share with others. I'd sometimes move toward the idea, but it had never come home to me so powerfully as in the example of this man, Cohen, who seemed to have everything, yet found his happiness, his freedom, in giving everything up. Late one night, as my gracious host tried to instruct me in the proper way of sitting in the lotus position, rigorous but relaxed, I couldn't find the words to tell him that I'd never been tempted to meditate. As one who'd been crossing continents alone since the age of nine, I'd always found my delight in movement. I'd even become a travel writer so that my business and my pleasure could become one. Yet, as Cohen talked about the art of sitting still, in other words, clearing the head and stilling the emotions, and as I observed the sense of attention, kindness, and even delight that seemed to arise out of his life of going nowhere, I began to think about how liberating it might be for any of us to give it a try. One could start by taking just a few minutes out of every day to sit quietly and do nothing, letting what moves one rise to the surface. One could take a few days out of every season to go on retreat or enjoy a long walk in the wilderness, recalling what lies deeper than the moment or the self. One could even, as Cohen was doing, Try to find a life in which stage sets and performances disappear and one is reminded, at a level deeper than all words, how making a living and making a life sometimes point in opposite directions. The idea has been around as long as humans have been, of course. The poets of East Asia, the philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome, regularly made stillness the center of their lives. But has the need for being in one place ever been as vital as it is right now? After a 30-year study of time diaries, two sociologists found that Americans were actually working fewer hours than we did in the 1960s but we feel as if we are working more. We have the sense, too often, of running at top speed and never being able to catch up. With machines coming to seem part of our nervous systems while increasing their speed every season, We've lost our Sundays, our weekends, our nights off, our holy days, as some would have it. Our bosses, junk mailers, our parents can find us wherever we are at any time of day or night. 
More and more of us feel like emergency room physicians, permanently on call, required to heal ourselves, but unable to find the prescription for all the clutter on our desk. As I came down from the mountain, I recalled how not many years ago, it was access to information and movement that seemed our greatest luxury. Nowadays, it's often freedom from information, the chance to sit still, that feels like the ultimate prize. Stillness is not just an indulgence for those with enough resources. It's a necessity for anyone who wishes to gather less visible resources. Going nowhere as Cohen has shown me, is not about austerity so much as about coming closer to one's senses. Thanks for tuning in to MakerCast, this podcast that I keep making, that keeps changing. Morgan James Smith here, and this is episode 42. For the past month or so, during meditation, I've been engaging in this practice called mental noting. That is, taking the breadth of my consciousness and focusing in with my attention on my breath. During my in-breath, as I begin, with a soft inner voice, I count. One. It's a long, gentle one that lasts exactly as long as my in-breath. During my out-breath, I count one again from the first sensation of exhalation all the way until I've finished. At the tip of my nose, which is where I first feel the cooling of the new breath rushing in, I begin my mental note, counting two, long enough to last that entire inhale. There's a momentary pause, which, if I had to assign it a shape, would be circular, and then that feeling of exhalation begins. And the moment I become aware of it, I note it with that quiet inner voice and that stretched out sound of two, all the way until that circular pause. As the third breath begins, the number three is noted, and so on. This practice has been very helpful for me, mostly because it's a valuable tool in helping me notice when I get swept away or lost in thought. The thought comes on, and before I know it, I'm adding to my grocery list, or replaying a conversation from the past, or fretting about a distant, unknowable future. As I become aware of this thought, I try to pay attention to it, and to identify it for what it is, 
this whole process happens fairly quickly. As I shift my attention squarely onto the thought, it'll usually dissipate, and it's only then, when I return to the mental noting of my breaths, that I realize that my attention has drifted. It's right here that my excuses begin. I haven't lost count, I think to myself. I still know where I am. I'm at seven. Sure, I miss the inhale. I miss that circular pause, but I'll just note seven on the exhale, and then I can move on to eight. But no, that's not the purpose. And so I begin again, letting the exhale escape through my lungs. And the moment I feel that cool air on the tip of my nose, signifying an in-breath, I begin again with one. I don't often get to 10. During any period of sitting meditation, I start back at one more times than I'm able to keep track of. Let's say, for example, that one day in the not too distant future, I were to count up to 20 breaths. It would be a personal record and I'd be tempted to share that number as some representation of the progress made during my practice of mental noting. Personal record setting, accumulation, achievement, progress. These are concepts that are heavily relied upon. If I think about adulthood, my own time and the time of those around me, it seems that growing older is a process of accumulation. We gain weight, we gain muscle mass, we set records and strive further and then break them and set more. We accumulate wealth or knowledge or debt. We add to our baggage and become burdened by the weight of our pasts, as well as the effort required to constantly direct our attention elsewhere, anywhere, anywhere but here. Slowly, over time with practice, I've come to terms with returning to the one, beginning back at the beginning, starting with that first breath once more. But coming to terms is different than celebrating. I've not yet been able to celebrate the simplicity that comes with returning back to the start. As I look around at myself, at others, at the world, I see most action being taken in the name, subconsciously, consciously, unconsciously, of accumulation. More and more for me, growth, wisdom, centering, grounding, they've all been supported more fully through a process not of accumulation, but of shedding, of simplifying. Whenever we are making something, bringing something into the world, there will be those inevitably inspired by our creation who will feel compelled to share that which they have always dreamed of making or doing, often followed by the statement, 
if I only had the time, or once I have the time, or I just don't have enough time. Time is valuable, but in my estimation, even more valuable than time is attention. Without attention, time is often wasted or poorly spent or spent without intention. We fight for our time only to squander it with no attention. Learning to pay attention through meditation has helped me connect more deeply with the value of time, see it for what it is, and revel in it with joy. This ability to channel our attention is not the same as the round-the-clock, caffeine-fueled productivity we often see lauded in the increasingly prominent world of workaholism. Even the word productivity implies that there will be something to show for our time, for our attention, for our efforts. And yet, personally, I benefit the most when I release my attachments to outcome and begin again with the first breath, gently counting. One. I suppose I'm an advocate for a slower life. I'm an advocate for a simpler life. Mostly because the slower and simpler my life gets, the crazier the outer world appears. Think about some of these commonly used phrases. Stuck in a job I hate. Stuck in traffic. Stuck in line at the drive-thru. I see all these every day, as if there were no way out. The job, detestable as it is, pays the car payment, and the car makes it faster to get from point A to B. And with all that rushing, all there's time for is a quick bite on the way. There are times driving towards the various nature refuges that are integrated into my daily routine where I'll hit a red light and I'll just count the number of cars in the drive-thru at the Taco Bell or the Panda Express or the Chick-fil-A or the Starbucks. I usually lose track or the light turns green around 30, sometimes more. Pico Ayer wrote about the way machines are seeming to become a part of our nervous systems, with an increase in speed with every season, or every update, or every new release. Further, higher, faster, more. All these words have become synonymous with better. If slower and less are priorities in your life already, and are being integrated, there's a chance that you see the madness for exactly what it is. But perhaps you're looking for a reminder, or you have an idea, but don't have the time to bring it to life, or more accurately, each piece of time that you do have 
gets squandered by attention being diverted instead of channeled, distracted instead of focused. I know the argument well. Survival of the fittest and the fastest. Or keep up or get trampled by the stampede of progress. To which I say this. If you are in a stampede, gather up your strength and your courage and work your way from the middle to the edge. Once you've made your way to the edge, take one strong, brave step outside of the herd and watch as the masses charge past, dust and debris flying in their wake, as those on their heels push ever harder in their attempt to catch up, or keep up, or make headway. Take another step back, catch your breath, and turn around. Now, just the sounds of the stampede permeate your senses. Some may call your name, urging you to return, warning you of your downfall if you fall too far behind. Take another step. See now that just off to your left is a deer path leading up an embankment. Walk towards it. Follow it up, up, up and away from the flying dust and incessant sound of trudging, tired feet. A ways up the deer path you find a stream. Take off your shoes, soak your tired feet in the icy water, wash your face, take a long drink. Notice as the sun comes out from behind a cloud, the way it dries the water on your skin, the way it warms you. Off to your left, you notice a patch of berries. You pick them. Some are sweet. Some are tart. You gather your things and continue on up the path. It winds, and with each new bend, a more diverse terrain is revealed. You stop for many rests, sometimes to eat, sometimes to drink, sometimes to sleep. The memory of your former life fades into the distance. The sound of the birds and the rain and the river replace the sounds of the herds rushing and running. After a time, who could say how long, you come to a clearing. You are well above the ground where you first noticed the deer path. You amble to the edge to sit, to eat, to take in the view. Far below you there is a cloud of dust and the distant sound of hard-soled shoes pounding pavement. People are yelling at each other, vying for position. 
From this vantage, you see the wide track they are on, and you remember how long you spent believing in your bones that you were just a day away from a promotion, from the promise of rest, from something better. And you shake your head as it dawns upon you that the track below you goes around and around in a never-ending circle. There have been many times in my life that I've returned, jumped back in, inhaled the dust and the smog and felt the elbows of the ambitious digging into my sides, the need to earn money or to contribute on the front lines of change never goes away. The difference in perspective though changes everything and once you see it for what it is, you can't unsee it, you can't forget. And finding the deer path becomes easier and easier each time we fight our way to the edge, step out, take a breath, and look around. I suppose I'm advocating for simplification. I'm advocating for the return of boredom, for doing nothing just to see what happens. I'm suggesting a shift in priorities where the most important thing is feeling a command of my ability to direct my attention and my energy, however I feel compelled or inspired. I speak this aloud, if nothing else, to remind myself of the importance of it. If this life, this one life, were a dream, and we knew we would awake at some point in the distant future, unharmed and well, what would we do? What would you do? For me, I would take every moment and try my best to cherish it, to see its majesty and notice how remarkable it all is. There is a fire within all of us. It is universal and it is uniquely ours. We have an opportunity to kindle it, to build it up, and to bring it to a blaze, warm enough to share with others, and bright enough to light the path ahead. This episode of MakerCast was recorded and produced right here in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Music for this episode in the show notes. If you'd like to support the ongoing creation of this show, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or visit patreon.com slash MakerCast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.